I guess a lot of people sort of saw the um, the video of the Israeli teacher who was arrested uh, and being like berated by all the students, all like the the the, uh, the youth, the Netanyahu youth, I guess you call them. Um, so people probably saw that, but this this is this digs a little bit deeper into that story. It just gives you a little more context of what that was. Um, this is a report from Jeremy uh, Lafredo. Um, I, I, Jeremy is a independent journalist from New York. I know he's also associated with the Gray Zone. So people get like, oh, oh the Gray Zone. It's a conspiracy. Um, some of it is a little weird for me. I get that. I just wanted to point that out. I also wanted to point out that it was Aaron Mate from the Gray Zone who inspired our, our Chris Coons uh, bit. So they don't, they're not all kooky. Uh, so this is a, a brief report he just filed today. Uh, he was just in Israel. While in Israel, police arrested Jewish school teacher Mara Baruchin for Facebook posts denouncing Israel's slaughter of innocent children in Gaza. His house was raided, he was kept in solitary confinement, and he was tried for articles related to treason in front of a secret court. And um, he was uh, detained uh, for uh, Facebook posts that are violations are pub punishable by uh, life imprisonment or the death penalty. And what were the Facebook posts? So it could go like this. Uh, Muhammad was 14 years old. He was a very good soccer player and his life dream was to become a professional soccer player. He will never become a professional soccer player because uh, on this and that day he was killed by our exceptional boys. Other Jewish Israelis who stood in solidarity with the teacher were brutally beaten. Since being released from military detainment, his students have led fanatic mobs against him. To say it in one sentence, they came in order to beat us. For me, it was a fascist uh, uh, event, really. By, uh, by uh, shouting or uh, saying different things, that uh, are not, uh, you know, on, in the national consensus, uh, you reveal yourself as a, as a traitor. And finally, uh, as he says, there are a tiny minority of Jewish Israelis who dare disagree with their government's openly apartheidist policies towards Palestinians, but they have found, too, that they live under a two-tiered system of justice. The state has got to a point now where, where it basically does not want anybody to criticize it. You can't criticize the state of Israel. You're Jewish, you're not Jewish, you're Palestinian, you're not Palestinian. It doesn't matter. It, it, it really got, it got to that stage where we're going to put in jail. This is how the country is operating now. In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Hello, friends and comrades, enemies, haters. We love you all, obviously. You all can come to our table. Um, you can be our, our waiter at the table of success. Um, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. I'm Rob. Uh, 
little crew session today because we have uh, some important uh, pieces that we've dropped in the call that we want to point your direction to, talk about how they came together and why they're relevant. Um, Super producer Carl is here, and he wrote one of them. And Jordan Howell's here. He wrote the other one. Hello, Jordan. Yo, yo, yo. Great to be back. I'm happy to have you here. Um, So I want to talk about uh, the the, sort of the news story first. Um, And this one I was so happy to to work on uh, with a group and you uh, because a lot of times uh, people say, I don't know who, who these people are, but they say it. They're like, you don't know. You don't know how it works. Oh, that's just how it works. Oh, you don't know Bob Bird's daughter lobbies and the thing and CLC. Like, you don't know. But what what this, I think, is indicating is we do know, actually, how it works. Sometimes we know before they know how it works. You didn't tell them what the story's about. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> um, so... We were uh, we, we, we got our hands on uh, a draft copy of the changes that the Corporate Law Council is going to send to the General Assembly. Um, and uh, The Corporation Law Council being the this uh, group of lawyers here in Delaware who basically writes amendments to the uh, General Corporation Law every year. Right, Rob? That's correct. And if you would remember sort of our conversation with Hal Weitzman, uh, what's the matter with Delaware, uh, we've talked to uh, Chance from Chancery Daily about some specific um, sort of chancery court, court of chancery uh, cases, um, but yeah, there is a there is a, a group, a subcommittee uh, in the Delaware bar uh, who basically determines what the corporate code changes should be um, based on their expertise and what really is needed to make the court efficient. Really, uh, and then they they're you know they're pretty complicated you know corporate legalese. They pass that to the General Assembly, and then the General Assembly uh, basically rubber stamps them. I mean, this is the—I know it's a cliche. It's probably overused, but I think that Hal Weitzman, I think John Kowalko, um, I think Medina, I think a lot of people who have been involved with it now uh, would agree with that assessment, and I think they have publicly. So, yeah, that's that's the context in which um, we got these documents, um, and and there was some things that really didn't go that. That rep- really highly reported, if at all, last session, uh, that we were able to add some context to sort of all of this. So, um, your idea was to do that and put it together with something that happened last year. You want to explain that that bit of it? Yeah. So this, as you said, um, yeah, you've had um, you know Hal and Chance on the podcast. Uh, you know, this is something that uh, you know you've been following. Uh, basically, the general Delaware's uh, general corporation law. Um, just in general, not just changes to it, but how, you know, all the things that are wrapped up in it from uh, how it allows, um, um, you know, a lot of uh, anonymity and secrecy in uh, formation of corporations, how, um, you know, there's uh, Delaware's known as uh, kind of an, you know, onshore tax haven where people can, uh, you know, basically move their money or like incorporate here in order to dodge taxes that they might owe in other states or, you know, elsewhere. And so this is something that you have talked about extensively on the podcast. And now we are covering, I think, for the first time uh, in the call, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think maybe we've, uh, 
you know, I don't know if we've linked to it or alluded to it, but never covered it like this. I think we we did. I did write that one story about the corporate secrecy. Yeah, a a few years because I remember taking a picture of like the CSC building or something on Orange Street. But I think we also might have um, put the Hal Weitzman uh, put the Hal Weitzman thing up on the call when I interviewed him, him and Dale. Um, so again, there's a lot of stuff up that sort of gives background, but nothing like nothing specific. And I know again because Kowalko comes up uh, in Hal's book uh, it, about this pro- this exact process because he tried to challenge it um, years ago, um, came up with the same thing. It's like we don't we don't challenge it. We don't like uh, the chapter in Hal's book is called the process, and, and he was told in no uncertain terms that um, you're just a legislator. You don't. You don't get to have a say in this. Like they give us this, and then we do that, and that's that. Uh, so there was a little bit of a break to that tradition uh, last June, June of 2023, uh, and you tell a little bit of that story too. Um, yeah, and you did talk to Medina as well about it. Yeah, yeah. And so in short, if you haven't read the piece, uh, Delaware Call uh, was leaked a copy of the proposed amendments to the Delaware General Corporation Law. For 2024, and the the amendments are don't appear at first glance, Rob. Based on the experts that we talked to, uh, don't appear to be very significant. Not at least anywhere nearly as significant as what happened last year uh, when we saw Medina. Uh, yeah, for the uh, first time in a long time, uh, we saw a legislator uh, challenge the process uh, of the general corporation law um, amendments. Yeah, and I don't know, um, I don't know how much Kowalko was able to rock the boat or if he was ever able to get any other legislators on board with amendments. But I, one of the things that we bring up in the article is that although there aren't very many notable changes this year, um, you know, is that because of what Medina did last year? I think successfully lobbying, um, I think it was, was it 11? 11, yeah. 11 11. legislators in the House uh, basically to support an amendment that would be, that would challenge some of the changes that the, um, uh, corporation law committee um, at the Delaware Bar was suggesting that uh, Delaware would make to its, uh, you know, corporation laws. Um, so, yeah, so for the first time in a long time, uh, you know, it was challenged. Uh, Medina got an amendment, you know, to, uh, you know, to a floor vote, and it was voted down. I think it was again eleven to whatever like twenty nine or something, something like, like that. that. Whatever yeah. the, I, I, I think that was it, eleven. And so, uh, yeah, and so and so that's a story, right? Looking at some of these changes, just kind of reminding people. Uh, what Medina did last year and why that kind of break with tradition was so important uh, because we do need more oversight, uh, you know, of the uh, just in general, I think, uh, Delaware's incorporation process and especially the way in, in which we, you know, amend the uh, general corporation law to make sure that, for example, um, uh, you know, as we saw last year, at least, uh, you know, there seemed to be some favoritism going on in the favoritism in the bill in the General Assembly, uh, making changes to the corporation law that would have benefited um, uh, some uh, pending litigation, um, some uh, defendants and some pending litigation before the Delaware uh, Court of Chancery. Yeah. And I, I think the first thing I'll say in 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 sort of categorizing the changes that they're going to be proposing or that at least these these are and we should be clear the documents that we have are sort of agreed upon and ready to vote sort of documents so it's sort of the last step is my understanding from our experts it has uh, a blank spot in there for it's just like it's like insert uh, bill sponsor's name here uh, you know stuff like that yeah so it's 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 sort of a document that's sort of ready to go but it's not 
fully approved. So we could actually, when the amendment is officially handed over and like on the big pillow with like the coronation shit on it, um, we'll be able to look into it and see if there are any changes to this. But as of now, there are very few. And, and you know, we did have our experts look over the way that we described them in the article. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's a good way to describe them. We're not going to get into sort of mundane minor stuff, but it's there and it's, it's accurate. Um, yeah. And then the situation that happened last year, uh, we discussed on the podcast uh, with Chance and Bill uh, the AMC situation. Um, so you, we also linked to it in the piece. Uh, we don't want to get bogged down with like details because we, but we did want to, um, you know, we worked very hard to make sure that it's clear and and concise. Um, but we can understand why you might be a little, might go a little bit deeper. Click on the thing. Chance and Bill tell us all. Just got to go back uh, about six months or nine months of podcast time. Because then uh, you can put them in the show notes. And we will put it in the show notes. And that's one of the things, uh, the Hal Weitzman interview and then the uh, the show with uh, you know with Bill and Chance. Yeah. Uh, you know, those are two really good deep dives into Delaware, uh, you know, Delaware corporate law and just kind of, uh, you know, why the state is so unusual and why I think people should be. Uh, you know, upset when they, you know, read in the news that another, uh, you know, corporation um, that is uh, registered in Delaware is, uh, you know, involved in, you know, human trafficking, uh, you know, or money laundering, uh, you know, or things like that. And those are two really good episodes just to show people how complex the 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 laws are, how complex the process is that and that all of that, um, you know, opacity really is not a bug of the system, right? It's a it's a feature, right? Yeah, and I think it's important to also say what, what Hal said. Like, number one, on one side of the coin, nobody – there's no reason to do all of this uh, business secretly and confidentially because you, you know what happens and no one wants to be like the person who is like, oh, yeah, you know, they traffic kids because we don't ask them for a fucking address, um, on the other side, you know, maybe, I mean, what they've done is they've made the court of chancery, uh, into a product Yes, and corporations like that product yes. because they get the results that pretty much favor them for the most part and they get consistent results. They get quick results and everybody trusts the results. Yep. So what you didn't hear me say is like. Who are, the, who are the like the stakeholders in that? Like like Hal's point. Like if you want to create a product, okay, but let's all sort of have a say in it about how it works, why it works, what we should be getting out of it. Um, so things are 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 clear. You know, having having the having the rules of the game of how these huge corporations operate sort of passed in a confidential folder, uh, and then when they're finally opened up. You know, you have, you know, a couple of weeks to read through them, but they're not really going to listen if you have any issues anyway. Um, you know, it's it's not a good way to do business. Um, you know, not even saying, and I think Leo Strine made this point, you know, it is, it, it is an efficient, good court of equity. But, you know, does it need to run this way? Does it need to, you know, to sort of be so, uh, I call it rigged. I mean, it's rigged, right? They're, they're, they're rigging it. I'm not even saying it's underhanded or anything. I'm just saying the it's they set the rules based on the stuff that's coming in. Well, what's, like, a, what's the joke that Chance said? 
It's like, well, what are the... Yeah, uh, look in the rearview mirror. What are the cases that won in Chancery Court this year? And you'll know what's going to be amended in the corporation law next yeah, year. Yeah, the plaintiffs... <laughs> the, 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 the cases that the plaintiffs bar, the people who are suing, win, well, those loopholes will be closed, but they usually wait like two years before they do it. So, yeah, that's a, that should be a funny thing moving forward. And, again, as you say at the end, we'll be, we'll be on it. We're watching. You think we're not watching? We don't know anything. We're just guys. We just make fun of people and make, and make them sad. We don't even know what we're doing. We do know what we're doing. This time we knew before you. So, you know, we're just trying to, just trying to get the information to the people in, a, in an entertaining, fun way. That's all. That's all we're doing. But yeah, it is very dry. Uh, the you know, the amendments of Delaware Corporation Law, but the you know article itself, uh, you know, is not. Uh, you know, read it and uh, you know just remember. Uh, yeah, and just so you know, quickly, uh, you know, remember what Medina did last summer, and that you know every every year when the Delaware uh, you know amendments come up for the Delaware Corporation Law, uh, we should be debating them. Uh, legislators should be putting forth amendments. You know, this process should be open. It should not be rubber stamped. You know, that needs to become a, a normal, regular part of the General Assembly. Is what Medina did last year. Absolutely, no question. So. Then we come to uh, the the academic portion of the program. Uh, I was very newspaper articles that I cited. So, there, well, well, I mean, look, that's 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 like Sil Wolford shit. That's some deep Sil Wolford shit. About a month ago, you'll correct me, but about a month, six weeks, uh, we were hanging out in here, and I noticed that you had a large book about the Knights of Labor. <laughs> and, and I and I looked at it and I was like, oh, I even might have said it out loud like to you. I was just like, oh fuck, here we go, because I knew when you when you embark on something like that, there's something to it. Um, and you you you've mentioned it a few times in conversation as you've gone through the book, but I didn't really know what you were what you were after. Um, so this is like an offshoot of it. Uh, but you uh, tell the story. Uh, you know, it's a, a brief. It's sort of a brief labor history of Wilmington. Um, in sort of present day context, but with you know this historical story of the of the biggest the first great strike uh, in Wilmington. So, yeah. what's the background? How'd you get into this? So, yeah, the Knights of Labor thing. That's a part of a larger thing that I'm working on, and I'm actually like five or six books in now. Um, and that's going to be just something about like the general history of the Knights of Labor, because for those who do not, they're like people who are aware of labor history probably know the name and are aware that it vaguely was something important. But the um, I've noticed. So actually, just before coming here, I was listening to a Jacobin podcast about the CIO, Congress of Ingr- um, Industrial Organizations, or something like that. Yeah, uh, I, think that's I always right. forget the exact I know acronyms. Um, but so the Jacobin has has a podcast right now, and then Haymarket Books also is doing a podcast on the CIO. Um, and it's funny because both of these things are happening. I'd already set off on this project like a co- a month or two ago, but you know, there's a lot of talk and like analysis on the left about um, like the New Deal era, the Civil Rights era, and now even like Reconstruction as well. I think has gotten a lot more like in the area that we've been doing this stuff. Obviously, it's become a much bigger deal, but I think there is still this like blind spot in like the 1880s specifically, and at the center of that blind spot is the Knights of Labor, which was, for those who do not know, it was basically the largest industrial union and i hesitate to use the word industrial union because that's not technically what it was but in terms of what its function was 
it was the first organization that organized workers en masse, so like hundreds of thousands of workers across skill. So it was skilled workers and unskilled workers. It was across ethnicity. So you had different uh, assemblies of like Hungarian workers, of Irish workers, of Polish workers. Um, it was organizing across race, which was huge for the time because basically no one had ever done that before. So you had assemblies that had black and white workers together, but then also more often you had like black assemblies and white assemblies, but they would work together, you know, across, you know, a city or a state. Uh, and then also a novel thing was that it organized across gender as well. So you had men and women alike were being organized sometimes together, but more often sort of segregated. So it was the first organization to do this in a real way. And it started as a very weird, and maybe we'll talk more about it because uh, this, I think kind of relates to how I'd want to tie it to today. So it started out as like this actual like secret fraternal organization in the 1860s founded by a guy from from Philadelphia and slowly grew over the 1870s and then went public in the 1880s and then quickly like exploded in membership and actually reached the the somewhere between 700,000 and a million workers. So that's like a huge portion of the workforce back in 1886 and then over the next four years basically completely collapsed. Um, and so it's a very interesting story on its own right. And then I think it's also a very important story. There's one of the books I was reading was um, The Making of American Exceptionalism, which basically its argument is that if you wonder why there's no like massive labor movement or there's no socialist movement or any of that stuff in the same way that there is in was in like Britain or France, the, argu the argument that the author makes is she says like, if you look at the labor movement in these respective, and like the socialist movement for that matter, in these respective countries, up until the 1880s, it was very similar. Like obviously there was, there was important distinctions, but like they were reaching the same levels of like organization, types of organization and like views on capitalism broadly. But then with the collapse of the Knights of Labor, that was kind of like a turning point in America that moved us away from more radical potential. Uh, we're and talking I think, about that shift, like right, yeah, right. I mean, August Village. When we talked to, uh, when we when we talked to uh, Dan, no, I can't remember his name. Sorry, David. Uh, <laughs> what's that? I can't remember his name. Either. I know it's just stick. It's not stuck in my head. I have the book too in my bookcase. Oh yeah, that's right. So yeah, I mean, he, you know, when Village came after the forty-eight revolutions in Europe, and fought in the Civil War, the 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 ideologies behind like a workers' movement. And, you know, sort of like getting the, you know, crushing the plantation owners was was pretty aligned yeah. with with the European sort of the European Marxist movement. Yeah. yeah, I think we had three. My view of it and, you know, maybe this will be part of the project is like I think there were three mo moments in the late 19th century where we really could have gone a different direction. One is obviously Reconstruction, because that was a real opportunity for like black power and then for like integrated like working class power in a lot of ways that got crushed uh i think it lasted you know i give it a lot more credit it lasted longer than i think people assumed like it didn't die in 1877 you had parties and organizations that organized black workers very effectively into the 1890s but then you had this huge labor upsurge in the 1880s uh that was crushed by a whole variety of things uh which we can talk about because that relates to the actual article uh, and then in the 1890s, you had the populist movement, which was a another biracial um, uh, alliance of uh, poor and sometimes better off farmers that formed the populist party in 1892 and actually won a bunch of states and started to like really effectively uh, demonstrate power. 
But then you get uh, a backlash against that. You get the Democratic Party absorbing them. And then also the argument that I'd make historically is I think that's a big reason why you start to get the Jim Crow laws. Because people think 1877, end of Reconstruction. Okay, we're not going to talk about black people until 1955 or whatever. But Jim Crow laws did not start getting passed until the 1890s. Like, there were black codes and there were certainly restrictions. But, like, the form that we see today, or not today, luckily, well, not fully today, but the Jim Crow laws that we think of did not start happening until, like, several years after the end of, like, official Reconstruction. So there was, like, all those moments really could have broken through, but they were all crushed by a combination of, you know, capitalism, white supremacy, state suppression, all this fun stuff. that The we forces talk about. of reaction. Exactly. Yeah. So and I think the Knights of Labor are very much a part of that story and one that like gets like people talk about Reconstruction. People talk about the populace. People don't really talk about the Knights of Labor, at least in my yeah. readings. A few no, people no. do. I think I, I don't think it's as uh, I don't think it's as talked about as and maybe just a little further in the, in the history. But, like, you know, you think about the AFL-CIO or things that happened, like, even in the 20s leading up to FDR, um, kind of because the Knights of Labor fizzled out, like, in the, before the turn of the century, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't for a long time until I read about them. Um, there, there, there's, a, there's a great uh, section of uh, Richard White's book on Reconstruction and the Gilded Age uh, about the Knights of Labor. Yeah, because um, he definitely a, mentions them, yeah. but it's a very minor part of the story. Oh, yeah, considered. it's, 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 yes. Which it's, I think is, if you actually read newspaper accounts of the time, like, yeah. they were paying attention to the Knights of Labor. Uh, and then my, the one that I use in terms of comparison is the IWW. We all know about the IWW, because, well, for one, they're still around. Uh, and two, they started a little bit later, and they're a little bit more recognizable as, like, an explicitly socialist or anarchist organization. Um but the IWW at most had like 100, 200,000 workers. And as I said, the Knights of Labor had like almost a million. So it's just, you're, and that's 30 years before it operated at a completely different scale. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. The thing I, and, and you can talk about it a little bit and then go into something else, but I did find it very interesting that, you know, people I think that understand a little bit about Wilmington do do get this, the beginning of a mill town, I guess that's because DuPont. So they kind of get that. They get that there was mills on the Brandywine, that there was a lot of heavy industry on the on the Christina there and on all of that. So they get that part. But I don't think they they, they understand the full scale of it. And you found some really cool photos that I thought were neat. The, the one of, of uh, Blumenthal at the top, I found – I had to find it on a map, and it's hard to figure out where it was. It's literally underneath 95. Yep, yep. It's, it's where the dark buses are. Yep. It's the dark bus yard is, is where that that, uh, uh, that works was, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, but the interesting detail is that, you know, most of the milling, when people think of, like, the early, like – colonial and then you know early countries mills you think of like massachusetts western massachusetts yeah, yeah. and this a lot of these tanneries which you go into explaining mm. these uh, morocco leather tanneries were moving works from massachusetts to here because it was cheaper yep because the massachusetts workers were already sort of organized yeah. and making more and they were like ah we'll move it to wilmington and pay those people peanuts yep and that's sort of what generated this this movement yeah so to give like a little brief background in terms of like what we're talking about with Wilmington, like industrial history. So essentially Wilmington has always been or had always been up to that point, like a, you know, it's always been Philly's little brother in a lot of ways. But specifically 
um we had the port and obviously we still have the port but the port stopped being like the most important port pretty quickly and our advantage at that point was industry so it started out as mills obviously dupont uh on the brandy wine a lot of other like mills and similar things on the brandy wine started out but by you know the mid 19th century you also have steam power and you have like you have the ability to move industry um in on you know inwards a little bit but we still are like very important in terms of like having access to a lot of uh resources around us we still are on the um you know the delaware river so we still were like a commercial hub and that allowed us to like have more industry so it was stuff like uh the tanneries was a big one uh rail car making shipbuilding was a big one obviously because we're right on the river um so all sorts of these different uh, little industries. It reminded me of that fam- the story in the the book about the Quick Steps, whose author we uh, we interviewed. That uh, at one point, uh, the their, uh, people attached to the king and queen of Sweden had to come here to pick up a a custom made uh, train coach a carriage yep. for their train. It was they were gonna, they were going to inspect it, then break it all down and ship it back. And they caught a Quick Steps game while we were in it. But that was a, one of the big <laughs> industries, right, like on uh, Water Street there. Yep. They said, yep. yep. But yeah, so it was, we had a lot of industry, but because of a variety of things, um, one is just like, there's fewer people in Delaware than there are in other areas. Um, and two, also like with our particular labor force, um, we didn't have as much immigrant labor. So we did, there was a lot of Germans and Irish. Um, and then obviously later on in Delaware, there was a lot of like Poles and Italians and all that stuff like that. But at this point, that was not the type of immigration we were getting in Wilmington. So it was mostly yeah, Germans and, and Irish, and most of them were like skilled workers or like they, they would come in and they would integrate into the community pretty well. Um, but then you did have like about 15 to 20 percent, I think at the time might have been a little bit less of free black labor, because as we've talked about in the past, uh, Wilmington actually did have. A lot of free black labor or delaware in general had a lot of free black um people but they were not able to form like the same sorts of organizations so like you get to pawn off all that work on the people who are like never going to get integrated into society at least in the near future uh so like we had lower wages in general um and yeah we just really didn't have up to that point a labor movement it's not to say we didn't have anything but most of what we would get would be and this is you know a continuity in Delaware history is like most of what we would get was be from Philadelphia. So for example, in the 1820s when uh, Philadelphia had one of the first working men's parties. So it was like an organization of like journeymen who would come together and like push for certain types of laws that we wouldn't even really recognize now as like needing to happen. But it was very important in, you know, like 1820s or 1830s terms. And so like we had our own little Wilmington working men's party, which I think actually like took control of the city council for a period of time. I I didn't look too much into that, but I've seen that mentioned. So we've had some like influence, but compared to like a Philadelphia and certainly compared to a uh, Massachusetts where it was, you know, since 18, eight, the 18 teens, really, there had been like a pretty solid labor movement in Massachusetts. You know, they'd been able to achieve a lot more pressure. And so, yeah, there was this, uh, organi- or this uh, tannery called Clark and Lennox and they, uh, this kind of gets into the Knights of Labor thing. There was a foreman, I believe, in the factory who was had gotten some of the, like the Knights of Labor secrets, and he'd revealed them. Knights and, of Labor secrets revealed. Yeah, and so the Knights of Labor were like, "What the fuck?" And so they asked the company to fire this guy, 
um, and this is part of, it was 1885, there was already this upsurge nationally of a lot of this labor, and they were like, no, we're not going to do that. And so they just didn't want to deal with any of this. So instead of having to, like, negotiate with the union because, like, they were walking out and everything, they were like, let's just let's just get out of here. Like, we'll keep some of our business here, but the part that's giving us trouble, we're going to move down to Wilmington. They don't really have labor movement down there. They We don't have to pay them as much, They but they already have a bunch of tanneries. So, like, we can do all this down there. Uh, so they, I think it was like July or something, they moved uh, their uh, industry down there and they thought they could get away with it. But um, at this point, uh, you know, there were already, there was already a lot of like in the country labor agitation going on. And specifically there was uh, a district assembly. So just quick thing on Knights of Labor, it was organized in local assemblies, which is a group of, I believe, at least 15 workers can be from one industry, it can be from a variety of industries. Uh, and then those local assemblies then form district assemblies, which organize a specific area. And then they all are a part of a national assembly or national or general assembly. Um, but the district assembly for Philadelphia, which they had several district assemblies, um, but this particular one, DA94, it was connected with a few Wilmington people. And so they gave a heads up to some of the leather workers in the Clark and Lennox plan to be like, hey, by the way, the reason that these guys came down here is because they were trying to mess with these guys up here. Can we, can you guys walk off in solidarity with the workers up in Massachusetts? And they did. So about, I think they said it was about half of the workforce walked out. Um, and that was, it was the, for the most part, the most skilled people, like the people who kept this stuff going. Uh, and so the factory shut down. So it was, I think, Th around three months because i literally could only find one report of when this thing actually ended because they just didn't like by the time it finished it was just not really that big a deal but it was um from october to january they had walked out and this generated like this huge enthusiasm because you know it was one of the first big labor solidarity movements and the organizers from district assembly 94 were like this is a big opportunity we're going to like really rally people around this so they brought in speakers from up and down like the east coast uh they hosted like balls they did everything they could basically like speeches rallies um and just like organized thousands and thousands of workers into local assemblies so it was um the leather workers were definitely like the most organized because they had already done an action uh but it was also let me see if i can get the list here like shipbuilders had already been organized a little bit before uh car workers um what else do we got here? I, I actually went into the database to see what we're in the database in. right now. Um, By car workers, you mean like railroad car workers? Uh, yeah, yes, people yeah. who would make the cars. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, construction was one, which is you know still organized today. Obviously, textile manufacturing, uh, printing, and like actual railroad workers because we had some railroads going through, and that was the big thing nationally with railroad workers. Um, so they organized. Uh, the newspaper said around 10,000. I saw also maybe as high as 12,000 workers. And you have to remember at this point, this is the mid 1800s, there was somewhere between like 40 and 50,000 people even living in Wilmington. This is before like the really big boom because uh, we got up to like over 100,000 at one point. Uh, so that is like a majority potentially of working people um, in Wilmington. So this was like a huge effort. And so, you know, everybody, they start going around uh, now that people are organized, they go to their employers and like, hey, we got a little bit of power. And like, we've heard all these things about negotiation and winning higher wages and all this stuff. So they'd go around to their employer and be like, hey, we want higher wages uh, or we're going to walk out. 
Um, and so in some cases, because we had a lot of Quakers, of course, and the Quakers like, oh, you know, we're all buddy-buddy. We're friendly. So a lot of them were like, hey, here's our books, essentially, like the way that negotiations should work, which is like, here's our books. Like, we don't really have that much money right now. So like, yeah, once we get more contracts, I will like give you a raise. But like right now, can you guys just like work with what we got? And a lot of them will be like, yeah, sure. You know, like most of these people were fairly reasonable. Transparent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but not everybody. And this was a part of like a larger movement. So obviously unions were organizing, but of course, employers were also organizing. Yeah, this is a uh, the next part of the story is, I guess, what we were calling a reactionary backlash. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is a, this is something you, you go into perfect detail. Uh, and I think people will recognize exactly this kind of move. Yeah, so there was a national, like, leather workers association, um, and so they formed, like, a local branch of it among all the uh, business owners. And, yeah, so it was, the president was, uh, what, Jay Parks Postles or something? Whatever yeah, his name it was, was Postles. Jay Park Postles, yeah, um, which I, I do wonder if he has any relation to Charlie Postles look, you today. Have to you have to, look. Um, but I'm you, not so saying you never it. know. I know. I'm and not. just and just to clarify because trade organizations are usually run by you know the employers or the industrialists, whereas of course labor unions are run by the workers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the union, the workers were organizing. So now the employers were organizing into the into these industrial associations, um, and so they were one of the ones that organized the most. Um, and so there's not really a lot of documentation, at least that I could find in the newspapers. Um, I could. Because I did all this research for this in about two days. Um, but, you know, there's not, not much documentation for how most of these encounters started. But with this particular encounter with the Morocco leather workers. Um, so, by the way, Morocco leather is just a specific type of leather. It's uh, just like a fancy soft leather. They yeah. make uh, many leather bound. When people say it smells like leather bound books, they're talking about Morocco leather. Yeah. So, uh, the all the Morocco workers, which is like a specific subset of the tanneries, um, they basically put out. A, they they sent a a guy to the like association headquarters for the employers and said like hey we want to meet and talk about wages and then the employers didn't respond you never guess what they did uh, so they didn't respond and then literally the next day they put out a, a notice in the paper to be like hey by the way we were requesting uh, we the knights of labor are requesting a meeting with the association to talk about wages and they didn't do anything so on Wednesday. At around noon, so I think some people just didn't come to work, and other people around noon they just on mass walked out. So we're talking like fifteen hundred to two thousand workers. So like crowds that we haven't really seen in Wilmington even now, with like about tw almost twice as many people who live here. And they all went to the Institute Hall, which is I don't know which side of Eighth and Market is on, but it was on Eighth and Market. So this was like the place for like labor organizing at the time. Um, it also when there was a Georgist. Uh, invasion, which is a whole other story oh later on. That was also met <laughs> we'll, in the We'll Hall. put a pin in that. And also, just uh, I think, just to help, I think, people under or like visualize this at this point, a tannery, let's say, um, at uh, where I 95 is now, would have been at the edge of town yep. in, in Wilmington at that yep. time. Yeah, because it was really just that. Kind well, this of particular one also was on. Yeah, uh, yeah so the, the Blumenthal one the, was uh, at the Blumenthal one was at where basically the dart bus thing isn't it? Yep. but this uh, this one is where the mcdonald's is at the adams four yeah. yeah so this this particular tannery where this action happened the big one yeah. is, is yes the, the mcdonald's at adams four yeah which also a little fun aside that i didn't include in the piece um there was a guy in the first walkout in october of 1885 uh so the story that i'm telling now is uh march of 1886 but the first walkout in 1885 that started all this 
they also hired a guy to wave a banner in just one guy, literally one guy, to wave a banner in front of the Clark and Lennox factory, and they had him arrested. <laughs> To be like, no, you can't do that. You're, like, disturbing the peace. As they do. And then the judge threw it out. So for the next three months, they hired this guy at $1.50 a day to just walk in front and say, like, unfair labor practice. Just, like, yeah. I love to it. yell at whoever would walk in. <laughs> Look, sometimes we got we got paid organizing positions. We can canvas. We got yeah. paid positions. So, yeah, the guy was just walking out. Um, but, yeah, so back to March 1886, they all walk out. They're all in Institute Hall. And then they, they walk back. They're like, hey, we're walking out. And then... You know, employers are now like kind of freaking out to be like, oh, we didn't realize they were immediately going to jump to this. Uh, and so they do actually have a meeting with the main guy who is an Irish immigrant named Matthew uh, Caldwell. Uh, so he was like 38. He was actually a skilled worker himself. You know, he had a family. He's very much like a established community guy. Uh, and so they had a meeting with him. And then he was a Wilmington guy. And then the board of District Assembly 94. So a bunch of people from Philadelphia. So they had some negotiations. Um and basically, the the issue that they have is that, hey, our wages are way lower than wages in Philadelphia, even though we're doing the same work. You found a cool quote, uh, which reminds me of the stuff that we put together when you're like, you're going to you're going to go to a committee or yes. something. You're going to put a slide together. But it's a very cool quote about like, hey, we do this piece, these pieces of work and the workers in Philadelphia get X and yeah. we get X minus two. That we do this many pieces of work, and so it just lays it right out, just like that. Yeah, and to give, like I said, it's like almost half, like it's a little bit over half, but it's like it is a significant chunk less. Um, and so that's going to actually become an issue later on. Uh, but yeah, so they try to negotiate, and actually people do come back to work for a couple days, but negotiations fall apart, and then things just shut down. So everybody goes out, and um, the people who are not organized yet, who do not walk out, this is sort of a common thing that happens. Um, even up to like the 1930s, which is just like gangs of strikers will come around and be like, "Hey, they you guys still working, huh?" Look, the guy. Sometimes you got to, you know, like yeah. strike breakers got to get. They got to be persuaded. We'll yeah. just call it that. And so, like, nobody got beat up or anything. So they, it was mostly like persuasion or just like strong come arm. On, come on, like get like, out. Don't here. make me punch you in the face. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the all the tanneries are shut down. So this is you know late March of 1886, and so unfortunately, like you know they're. They continue to have meetings. They continue to rally the troops. Um, and also, I think it's important to notice we talked about how the Knights of Labor organized uh, all sorts of people, like across race and gender and, and class. So there's definitely organization across um, uh, class. So there was definitely like skilled and unskilled workers. I'm pretty sure there was reference because the issue is none of these things are super well recorded because... Uh, one of the things I also run into in earlier Knights of Labor papers is uh, it's all the people in charge complaining, like, you guys got to start filling out the forms correctly because we do not know what you're doing. True serious shit. Um, <laughs> this is fucking Carl and Drew being like, you're not you're not doing the proper fucking administrative yeah. work. And so now it's tough because we go back and look at all these data on, like, who was actually being organized in Wilmington. We have no clue who it actually was for the most part because no one was filling out the paperwork. So we think that there, on, folks. there was reference to women strikers. So it seems like women were organized because we know they worked in the tanneries. And then there was reference not to strikers specifically, but to like members of the crowd. So it was white and black workers in the crowd because we know that there was black workers in the tanneries as well. So it seems that they were organizing. And given how many people were in the union, it seems like it was basically organizing across scale, across race and across gender. So they're you know, still, have, still having these meetings. But um, for those who know their labor history, what also has starts to happen in late March, April, and then especially in May of 1886 is 
that big labor unrest that was actually driving people to take action in the first place starts to fall apart. So some of it is like stuff that was probably within the workers' control and they just did poorly. So like, um, you know, organizing strikes that had no chance of succeeding and then falling apart immediately. Some of it was like very violent, like employer repression. So for example, the Great Southwest Strike of 1885 or 1886, the 1885 one worked, the 1886 one did not. Um, the like more skilled workers refused to take part of it. And then all the governors called out like their troops and just like massacred people. So that was already starting to happen in like April of 1886. And then the most notorious one is May 4th, 1886. This is one that people do talk about is um, there'd been like huge protests in Chicago uh, around the eight hour day. But there was actually a fairly small protest that was called by a bunch of anarchists on May 4th uh, in the Haymarket Square. And as everybody was leaving, somebody threw a bomb and it killed some policemen, killed some strikers. Um and just caused this huge backlash across the country against any labor activism, despite the fact that Terrence Powderly, the conservative head of the Knights of Labor, was like immediately turned all of his attention to being like, we are not anarchists. We have nothing to do with anarchism. No, but people don't care. Um, so there's this huge like national wave against labor activism. And while all this was happening, so you know the public opinion is already turning against labor, which includes Delaware, of course. Um, but, you know, they're they're sticking to the strike. So this is April, May. We're like two months in. But um, because of the way that the leather business worked, it was based on like contracts. And there were certain seasons that were like very busy and certain seasons that were just not busy at all. And so for the first few months of the strike, this it just wasn't very busy business wise. So like the strike, uh, the employers are just like, well, we don't need to do anything right now. So they just refused to meet, didn't do anything. Um, and then when business did start to pick up, but they, they just hired strike breakers the same way that they would now. Um, so eventually, you know, over time, people start to, um, you know, some of the strikers go back to work. They just, you know, there, there was a story in May where one guy tried to return to work and got beat up by a bunch of people who may or may not have been Knights of Labor. The, the Knights themselves condemned it, but, you know, it's possible they were, you know, it was other workers most likely. Uh, but, like, eventually people do start going back to work there. And then also a bigger thing that happens, because we talked about other areas offering better pay, a lot of them just went to Philly and, like, worked in the tanneries there and got better pay. Uh, and so the employers kind of started to negotiate in, like, eight, August. So they actually did meet with Terrence Powderly, who was, like, the national head of the Knights of Labor. But nothing happened. And so people just like either stopped, started leaving more and more, and then some of them just went back to work without realizing. And then in mid-October, the District Assembly 94 officially votes, and they're like, okay, this strike is over. Um, so they didn't do, like, the employers didn't do the full-on, like, labor violence stuff. So, like, they said, like, oh, you know, we'll consider giving you your jobs back if you're real tight, but we're, like, really full right now. So, like, you know, we might not be able to do it. Um then a few years later, then they cracked down on the Knights of Labor and basically said, like, yeah, you're not allowed to be in the Knights of Labor anymore. Uh, but, yeah, so they started just, you know, and then so I think the number was something around, like, 300 people were still, uh, had still uh, held out. But that's out of, like, the 1,500 people that were there at the start. So there was a really big, you know, because it was, like, six months, six or seven months long. So a lot of people had gone back to work or found other work in that time. And after that, yeah, the Knights of Labor began to fall apart really quickly. This happened across the country as well. In some places, they held on actually pretty far, like even into the 1890s. 
But in Delaware, it seems like the roles dropped off pretty quickly, and by 1890, they essentially ceased to exist. And that was... I See, I this is now why I want to do more research on some of this stuff, because I do not know like what happened with Delaware in... I know we didn't really have a strong IWW or like a socialist party or any sort, but like I assume we were involved in like CIO organizing and like the big upswing in the 1930s. But until then, there was really no major. There was one strike in the early 1900s done by AFL workers, but it was like a pretty moderate thing. And like everybody's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. So this was really our it was our first major labor action, first major labor strike. And it was really our last one for decades and decades. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I thought it was um, interesting that this came out in the call this week, uh, which is the same week, I believe, that uh, Sean Fain, uh, the head of the uh, UAW, uh, is encouraging all trade unionists and labor unions to uh, negotiate the end of their contracts at the same time in 2028 because that's how you do it so you know these things ebb and flow uh we're on the upsurge and i think it would be important to uh to sort of like uh you know digest that history because that's going to be an important part it's going to be important part of the project maybe the most important part so yeah great work man can I just say, Carl, what I really liked about your story in the call is that <clears throat> we have this kind of, and you mentioned it in the story, and I'm got, like really happy, like, really pleased with how you kind of laid it all out. The prevailing uh, kind of like uh, notions here in Delaware, or like version of history that there's this has been a place where you know there hasn't been a lot of labor activism. That with this kind of paternalistic version of big business, that it's like, oh well, we don't need unions here because like you know because the businesses we have here they're all so nice and they take care of their workers they really take care of their uncle workers, dupont right? is your friend uncle dupont is your friend and you you know you kind of take that to task in your in your story and everything. yeah because that's because i i had the story and i because i had found the story actually originally because i knew that there was knights of because i'd gone in the database i saw like oh there's actually a good number of like knights of labor locals in delaware so I was like what's going on with that and i think i had found an ebook for uh I think Carol Hoffaker, I believe, is her name. Um, yeah, she used to be like I think the chair, like history chair um, at UD. At UD. Yeah. UD. Yeah. yeah, I think she's um, a Delaware historian. Yeah, and yes. she, yeah, she wrote this this whole book about the development of Wilmington as an industrial city from 1830 to 1910. It's a great book. Yeah, um, I, saw, I saw you footnote it, and I when I scrolled down to the notes, I was like, I knew the name. I knew yeah, it was Del- she's, she's done Del- a lot Del- of yeah. books about like Wilmington and Delaware more broadly. Yeah, um, so that's the first one from her that I've read. So I'm very interested to dig into her other stuff now. Um, but so, yeah, I had the story for, and then I was reading that for, I think, another reason. I saw that. I was like, oh, hey, I recognize that. And so I used her as kind of like a jumping off point and then did most of the actual like there was less in, in the book. Than, there was a lot more to the story than was in the book. So I got to learn a lot just from reading the newspapers. Uh, also, just a little funny aside that I also did not put in the article was very shortly after the strike started, um, there was an unrelated boycott of the morning news. Uh, really? Because they were the typographers union, which was actually a pretty big deal at the time because there was a lot of similar boycotts in a lot of cities. Typesetters and stuff? Yes, yeah, typesetters. Right. Yeah. Um, they were asking for a boycott on the... Uh, and so I don't think they were a Knights of Labor union, but they were called for a boycott and the Knights were like, yeah, so we're, we're officially calling as the Knights of Labor a boycott of the morning news. 
And so you can very clearly see the before and after of like when that happened because the morning news coverage gets way more negative <laughs> right after these, the boycott these, starts. You, you goddamn motherfuckers. <laughs> and they keep writing like all these little op-eds to be like, well, the Knights of Labor would do best to like ignore, to not do this boycott because like we didn't do anything wrong. So it's just very silly. Does their typesetting get all jacked up? Yeah. <laughs> all the letters are all like fucked garbage. up. Yeah. <laughs> Ink's all fucking everywhere. I mean, Letter, letters are all It's hard to tell because, you know, you go into, like, the old archives, and it's, like, hard to tell, like, was this originally printed like this or did it just, like, poorly stored? Some of them are very hard to read, to be yeah. fair. Um, but, yeah, so, like, yeah, that is – so I got into this, like, as for the story itself, but then I was thinking about it in the context of, like – I remember – well, because I live in Brandywine Village and grew up in the Triangle, so I, you know – would always go to like Bancroft Mills, uh, even before it burnt down mysteriously. Well, and and as uh, as a lot of people are asking asking, who burned down Bancroft Mills? Yeah, I mean you know, you know who still <laughs> asked, you know who literally turned and and like I, he probably won't mind me saying this. We had lunch uh, earlier this week or last week, uh, Lex, and just and out of out of nowhere, he just turns to me at the bar at Cavanaugh's and goes, "You know what I want to know." Who burned down Bearcroft Mill? Yeah, That's what know, I it's, it's a great question that a lot of us are asking, and maybe that'll be the next. <laughs> one more, one more people are asking that question. Yeah, this yeah. will be maybe like the next Delaware College. We'll team up and be like, yeah, yeah, who, who burned down Bancroft Mill. Expose. Um, but so if you've been like Brandywine Park or like Alpocas, I guess technically that far up, um, they have like a little like uh the place where workers would walk across. So the bridge is gone now, of course, but they have like a little display about um, uh. The history of Bancroft Mills, which is actually very interesting, because it has a little bit about Ban- like the original Bancroft and like here's how it developed, and they have a timeline from like you know the 1800s all the way till like 2003 or whatever when it officially shut down, um, or 2007 I think when it officially shut down. Um, but one of the things they have in there is in the 60s, which also a very underrated time in Delaware history. Um, but yeah, in the 60s, it's like, oh, this was a, there was an attempt to unionize uh, Bancroft Mills. It was the lowest period in employee, employee relationships in the company's history. And then then it starts to show how the mill declines, and it's like very heavily implying that the union effort killed Bancroft Mills. Um, and then, yeah, if you go to like, you know, any of like the DuPont stuff, so like Winterthur, Longwood, or the um, Mount Cuba, like any of the like DuPont or DuPont adjacent areas, which... DuPont is notably absent from the story. Like any stuff I found about it really did not mention DuPont, which is interesting. Um, so I'm sure they, you know, they're sort of the, you know, shadow looming over all this conversation when we talk about Delaware industrial history. Um, but like they very much tell that story. And then, you know, it's something that you hear in general of like the Delaware way being something that is very innate to Delaware in some way. And like, I do think there's obviously, you know, as I talk about in the story, Obviously, Delaware is different, is unique in terms of like how little like labor act. Like it is very unique in different ways, but I think that is seen as something very innate to Delaware, and I think it is not innate. It is something that is just like, as we talked about when we were talking about the um, uh, the slavery in Delaware. Like, there's very specific reasons why slavery developed the way that it did that labor developed the way that it did and, and it wasn't it wasn't because we were altruistic it's not because we were altruistic it's not because we were like unique it's because of the people who settled here and what they did and when new people come or when new industries come or when things change politically like we are not immune to the changes that are affecting the rest of the country and i think this was part of like showing that like we are not just we're part of a national community and a global community and it's not just delaware here collecting dust you know not actually doing anything Look, historical conditions, folks. 
people are talking about them more and more every day. Yeah, it's a great piece, Carl. Well done. Um, the one thing I wanted to remind everybody of, we, we talked about it a bit last week, the, <clears throat> the conversation on black and Palestinian solidarity uh, that is being sponsored and moderated by Councilwoman Sinead Darby has been rescheduled. Friday, February 23rd, 6 p.m., at the Episcopal Church of St. Andrew and Matthew on Shipley Street in Wilmington. Um, Dr. Rob Abel, as we said, uh, Dr. Z- uh, Zaire, uh, who is a Palestinian chemist, speaking of DuPont, uh, he, he uh, is going to be on the panel, Jeffrey Richardson and our friend uh, Medina. Um, we're actually um, looking into potentially covering that on the podcast in some fashion. We actually hope to live stream it. I don't know how that's going to work, but we'll see. But it's going to be a huge event. We're going to talk about it a lot. Uh, if you can get out, I think it's going to be very important. I think it's going to be an important event in the city um, this year. Um, just because I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that Shanae is taking the opportunity to sort of, speaking of telling a story that doesn't sort of get make that connection all the time, that's important. So we'll talk about it more. Last thing. It just came to my attention. And this kind of like, uh, I guess, it came to my attention after reading this, actually. So this is an ABC News uh, this morning. Biden campaign speech on abortion rights disrupted 14 times by protesters. His 2004 message was interrupted by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. This is in the ABC News. We'll link to it. President Joe Biden had planned a major campaign speech on Tuesday to highlight abortion rights as key to his 2024 campaign issue. Marking the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion nationwide that the Supreme Court overruled in 2022. But instead, he was interrupted some 14 times by Palestinian protesters as he tried to deliver his remarks. They repeatedly stopped Biden, who appeared frustrated at times with chants that included Genocide Joe and How Many Kids Did You Kill Today, in opposition to his support for Israel in its war against Hamas in Gaza. Biden supporters drowned them out uh, with chants of four more years and let's go Joe. He struggled to finish his speech, telling the crowd at one point, they feel deeply. Whatever that means. Uh, the protest appears to have been coordinated. The demonstrations, the demonstrators stood up and shouted from different sections of the auditorium at different moments. After the seventh interruption, Biden said, There's going, this is going to go on for a while. We have a couple more of these, I believe. The protest continued when the president's motorcade was greeted outside the rally. A site by dozens of demonstrators, some carrying signs and Palestinian flags. The motorcade drove through dozens of protesters standing on either side of a two-lane road outside the venue shouting, shame on you. And it, reading that and, and reading the, um, the, the famous chant, how many kids did you kill today, reminded me of LBJ, obviously. Um, but then what I remembered is that, and, and you guys will know this, at least Carl will know this, because this is something Carl would know. This summer, the Democratic National Convention is in Chicago. Well, I'll be damned. So, um, let's just, we'll just go out on this, I guess. Are we going down? 